0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to When We Talk about Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern.
0: And I'm Viveka Morris.
1: For two and a half million years, humans sustained themselves by eating plants and animals that lived and reproduced without our manipulation. That changed 10,000 years ago, when Homo sapiens began to intervene in the lives of a few plant and animal species, sparking what we now call the Agricultural Revolution. The Industrial Revolution followed some 10,000 years later, in the early 1700s, revolutionizing our eating habits yet again. Just as the humanist religions were defining human beings as the image of God, humans started to view animals as meat machines. Farmers brought the techniques of the factory system into the slaughterhouse, dramatically increasing the number of animals they could raise and kill for food. The industrialization of agriculture has led to the practice now known as factory farming— a multibillion dollars industry that controls nearly a third of Earth's land is transforming ocean ecosystems and produces more greenhouse gas emissions than planes, ships, trucks, cars, and all other transport combined.
0: For thousands of years, farmers took their cues from natural processes, Jonathan Safran-Foyer writes in his book, Eating Animals. Factory farming considers nature an obstacle to be overcome. Our guest, filmmaker Christopher Quinn, wanted to understand the forces behind this phenomenon. His new film, Eating Animals, based on Jonathan Safran Foyer's acclaimed nonfiction book, traces the environmental and economic consequences on both human and non-human animals of the departure from local sustainable farming. With bracing intelligence, empathy, and imagination, the film explores the practical and ethical costs of treating animals as meat machines and profiles some of the farmers who have refused to do so.
1: Christopher Dylan Quinn is an American film director, writer, and producer. His documentary, God Grew Tired of Us, which chronicles the journey of three refugees from Sudan to the United States, won Best Documentary at the Deauville Film Festival and the Galway Film Festival. It earned him the Emerging Documentary Filmmaker Award from the International Documentary Association and an Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize at the 2006 Sundance Film Festival. His acclaimed film, Eating Animals, was released in 2017.
0: Christopher Quinn, welcome to When We Talk About Animals.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: In Jonathan Safran Foyer's book, Eating Animals, upon which your new film is based, there's a significant focus, which I think is very unique in the book compared to other books about factory farming and about animals even in general, on the importance of storytelling. And storytelling is actually the the title of both his first and last chapter. Um, And he he writes in the book, and you, you talk about in the film how the stories we tell ourselves about what we eat are really some of the central stories of our lives. They're stories about our values and about our history and about our families. And so I'm curious... Thinking about the importance of of the storytelling, what drew you to want to tell this story of factory farming and how our meat is produced in America?
2: Well, I mean it started out for me. uh, I received a call and uh, so Natalie Portman had uh, read Jonathan's book and and contacted him and said that she was interested in making it into a film. Uh, And Jonathan and Natalie had seen – a film I had done previously. They both liked it, so they contacted me. And to be honest, at the in the beginning, I I really wondered if we needed another food documentary since there had been so many. Uh, and I hadn't read Jonathan's book, so I decided to uh, at least read it and t- and take a look. And, and uh, forty or fifty pages in, I was I was hooked uh, for maybe some of the same reasons that you were just mentioning about the book about storytelling and also how uh intrinsically tied food is to our history and our religion and our and, and ourselves. Um so I was uh I I met with them and we just got along really well. We sat in the backyard at Jonathan's house in Brooklyn and we all started to talk about how we were going to make the film and uh that was the beginning of uh of becoming involved. Uh, in in the project. Personally, uh, what I liked about it was that it kind of turned everything – my view of how I was buying food for my family, everything got kind of turned upside down. Uh, in reading the book, and I really liked that idea that uh, my preconcepts were all getting thrown out the window about where my food came, came from, and you know, I was a—I uh, felt I was well educated. I had read a lot of the books and gone, you know, omnivore's dilemma, and spent a lot of time uh, carefully selecting food. But it was—it was—it was on a different level. So that was intriguing uh, to me.
1: I had that. Reaction to to the book. Um, I think what's powerful about it, it really brings out how um, when we talk about animals, we're talking about ourselves. And he opens it by talking about that kind of trifecta of anthropocentrism, anthropomorphism, and anthropodenial and how there's this kind of impossible choice between – project like we don't want to project our own natures onto animals – but on the other hand, of course, we are animals and we disavow the parts of ourselves that we don't want to confront by calling them animal. So, I yeah, I had that reaction too. And, and um, I wonder, it made me just wonder, and I think the film does this too, it kind of gets under your skin in a way that a lot of approaches to this subject don't. Yeah, I was just curious... Sort of if that was – if that kind of hit you all at once when you were done reading and when you started conceptualizing the project or as you were moving through it, it kind of came incrementally or if it was a like a gestalt.
2: Well, one of the big drivers was that I, I really didn't want to make a survey film because uh, I, I don't make survey films to begin with, which was in the book in a lot of ways is a survey, although it it does – have this very powerful personal story of of, of Jonathan's uh, grandmother, uh, you know, surviving the Holocaust and 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 making it to the United States, and kind of always obsessing about foods, and she was denied food for so long. But I, the 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 real thing for me was how do I spend time with the individual, some of the individuals that are in the in the book, and then in turn, I found other people to come in. And and be a part of the film. But when I when I talked with Jonathan and Natalie about uh, making the film, I, one of the things I said that it, it has to be driven um, by um, people and the the people that are either uh, caught in the long shadow of, of factory farming or are kind of activated uh, to try and stop it. All anybody that was going to come into the film would have to kind of be we would have to see through their eyes the real complication of a, a of a of the vertically integrated systems that are factory farming right so it became a systems film when in, in a in a weird way it, it converted from you know a survey to a systems film but These are the systems that we put into place and there's a lot of other ones that uh, like in the financial sector, these systems I think that have to be kind of redrawn. Our food systems have to be redrawn and that's a difficult thing to kind of tell with subject-driven narratives but it was important to um, see what the real fallout was by um, investing time both on camera and off camera with, with some of the subjects that are in the film and, and speci- we can specifically maybe talk about uh, Frank Reese, a, a turkey farmer in Kansas who has kind of, I think the oldest heritage uh, – the oldest line of, um, uh, of turkeys and chicken uh, in the United States and so he has these rarefied genetics that are kind of the last on the planet. And we spent a lot of time with him and what you learn when you go out and spend a lot of time with the man and his turkeys is that there's a relationship there. And through that relationship, it became – that really changed things for me because I saw the complication. It wasn't just about should we eat meat or not eat meat. It became this relationship that I think we – all but 1 percent of the farmers in the United States have given up completely. And there's some beauty in there. We we were talking about that a little bit earlier. But that 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 moved me to kind of uh, shape the film.
0: The portrait of Frank Reese in the film I think is very striking and, and just as you said, very beautiful in that he talks about how beautiful he finds the birds and the, even the aesthetics of his heritage birds and how beautiful their relationship is too. And I think that's something that's very moving about the book but also your portrayal is that it's not just – that we shouldn't do a bad thing and we should return to a neutral ground, but that actually by both honestly acknowledging and taking seriously how the meat is raised and then trying to improve that relationship, you can have the animal – not only are the animals themselves when they're not you know, genetically bred to be enormous and weak and almost – not fully animal in the way that they used to be um, can't be beautiful as Frank Reese says at one point like you can't love I think he says in the film to paraphrase him an animal that's destined to die or designed to die in 6 weeks but that that it's not just that you shouldn't do the bad thing but that we actually can strive for much more than that and the film not only illuminates the horror that is our current situation but but sort of hints at um at a much more beautiful future that that is within reach
2: and with the, just to add to that, I mean, it, it's spending time with Paul Willis, who's a hog farmer in Iowa that you, you also see in the film. But uh, one of my many visits out before we started filming, um, he said, and I think that's how pigs uh, make their living. And I always found that really interesting because uh, I, I was like, what does that mean? A pig makes its living. And it was his whole uh, encyclopedia Encyclopedic knowledge of hogs and what they do, and so what he, he really for Paul was to you give them the environment that makes them most happy, and you don't interrupt that. So they're you know they're nesting animals. Uh, so they like to spend cultur- culturally they like to spend a lot of time together, but there's times that they don't like to spend together. Uh, for instance, like when uh, a sow is pregnant, they will go off by themselves and they will not participate in the big party that's in one of the lean-tos. And then there's other moments that they don't and he has all the this knowledge and here you're talking about a 70 – I guess a 75-year-old man who has all this knowledge that isn't going to jump to the next generation. And If we decide to continue to eat pork, which I think we will in the near – Future at least, and uh, that's a that's a separate uh, conversation. But wouldn't you rather have a farmer that at least appreciates how a pig makes its living uh, than uh, somebody who uh, has you know CAFOs can find confined uh, animal feeding operations, and they have no relationship to that animal whatsoever, except for to you know automate a feeding cycle for them. And make sure they have enough antibiotics to survive under really severe conditions.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder if that uh, sort of relationship and affection, or the knowledge of of how a pig makes its living, as, as Paul Willis said, is possible with a large economy. Like a big economy of scale and that it seems in some ways – I know like the writer Wendell Berry and others have argued this, that you have to have a local economy in order to foster that type of affection and firsthand knowledge. And then there's sort of a – that sort of has a parallel with what you're saying earlier with regards to how you approach the film as through the particular characters of people like Frank Reese in that. Just as you can't have empathy, perhaps for numbers, it's very hard for people, myself included, to have empathy for numbers like the billions and billions of animals that are being killed each year in the factory farming industry. But you can for a particular animal. It's hard to have empathy or to, to uh, relate to, you know, farmers as a mass versus particular farmers. But I wonder, I do wonder if if it's if it's possible, or if the, the economy of scale that we've seen arise during the 20th century with factory farming is just inherently at odds um, with this type of affection
2: well uh yeah, that's interesting. It's completely at odds with mm-hmm. with that um and that turns you know the question on to us, the consumer I mean we are at a place where in order to meet the overwhelming demand for meat consumption since it's on a meteoric rise in uh South Asia and east Asia uh they're starting to adopt the so called western diet uh now that there's middle income and in, and in, those those areas, we're going to find ourselves in a place where we're going to have to produce 100 billion animals a year. That's in just 50 short years and we already are taxing the environment in such a, a way that I don't think it's, it's – we, we aren't aware of it maybe collectively, but we, we can't go down that road. So what are we going to do? And that was a big question for me when I had that moment where I really looked under the hood. Of factory farming, in the process of making this film, and that became almost immediate the reason why I stopped consuming meat. Uh, you know, at the beginning I was a meat eater. I told, uh, laughingly, told uh, Jonathan and Natalie that you got the wrong guy. <laughs> um, and but it had a profound effect because very soon, in kind of having this awakening and this understanding, I realized, oh, uh, I've been doing this for so long, but I've I've contributed to so many things that I don't agree with. So it became very easy for me to kind of move and adapt and change my the way that uh I lived. Um and I think that it kind of is what we all end up having to do now. We don't have a choice really, in the end. And so if we want to consume meat and uh and we consume meat as you know uh Bruce Friedrich of the Good Food Institute says in the film, because it's delicious and it's also readily available that That's something that is new. We design the system that you can have you know chicken for breakfast, lunch and dinner. It's there, it's very cheap and inexpensive. but we eat it despite how it's raised. And the effects of how we raise these animals and the volume in which we raise it is going to do us in. And so we have to make that decision whether we're going to either eat a, a lot less meat, which I always encourage. I mean this idea of reducing meat consumption and not uh, – for people who don't want to get rid of it, just reducing it is a significant step. It's a very powerful uh, a, a thing to to undertake in your life. and. Once we get there, I think that kind of peels away, um, you know, the onion skin that you can't see. But these people, like Frank and and uh, you know uh, Paul and and also the you know Bill and Nicolette Nyman, and they become important because if we are going to consume meat, we need to have that relationship where it's very expensive. That the people who are raising it are doing the very best that they can to make sure those animals have a good life. And that's the ultimate, you know, we were the, something that we were discussing before we went on air, but this idea of rewinding back to a place that seems at least to make sense as we're kind of dashing forward into the future, blindly not looking at the systems that we've put in place to try and get us there.
1: It's interesting. There's um, a philosopher named Dale Jameson who thinks a lot about why we find it so difficult to conceptualize the horrors of climate change and to to make changes practically in our own lives that reflect our views. And he has this thought experiment about like if you punch someone, that's clearly wrong because the distance between the cause and effect is so Short and it 's like it's but with climate change it 's like it's like you're throwing the punch, and then by the time your punch lands it 's a different person it 's the next generation, and I think the idea of a long causal chain between the source of the between the badness and like the the chicken parmesan or something is I think part of why. It's so hard. It's like we can know abstractly that there are these kill centers that undergird our entire socioeconomic order in terms of how we eat and the products we consume. But somehow it's just why is it so hard to act on that? And so I think – I mean that's something I've struggled with in my own life. So I'm just curious if what that was like – if there were like particular details that just felt like once I've read this or once I've put my head – here, I just can't move forward.
2: Well, I mean, yeah. So Dale thinks about these things, and he's he's in our, you know our film in in a couple of uh, periods. One of the things that uh, I really liked about Dale is you know he does take that long view. And uh, a while back, I was interested in doing a film on time, so I was looking at time, mm. and I ran across a number of people um, who were also. Concerned about how we conceive time, um, and uh, Stuart Brand, who was you know part of the Merry Pranksters, but he was also you know godfather of the No Nukes movement, and he's been kind of ostracized from that community because he now believes nuclear fusion energy is a much better way than than coal. And he had that moment where he's like, "Oh, if I had really looked in a, a long view of it, I would have realized that there are some benefits." To nuclear fusion energy, whether you agree with him or not, he's changed completely changed his view of how we should look at time, and he is uh, uh, putting together a clock as a symbol called the Clock of the Long Now, which ticks the the you know the second hand. I mean the the yeah the second hand run I think ticks once a year, and uh, and then you know the. The minute hand moves every uh, 10 years and so it's this idea of uh, where are we going to go with this you know, uh, and that we need to be looking as Dale Jameson kind of in his uh, philosophy kind of um, thinks about uh, what are we going to do with with time? And I – that changed for me when I realized, oh, I'm going to leave a world – For my children, that's going to be much different from what I experienced and their children are really going to have it tough. So that's one of the many reasons why people don't eat meat but that's why I always abstain from eating meat is that is what enters my mind the fastest, the quickest, not the the suffering of animals which is significant. But the first thing that always comes to my mind is that if I do this and I'm very happy to have this consideration even – when there's the desire sometime to have a nice steak or whatever you you know desire to just think for a second about what that steak is going to do, how much water is going to be consumed to put that steak on my plate, how much grain's going to be consumed, and how much environmental degradation is going to happen because of that, and it's just a it's, it it sounds like a pain in the ass. Uh, but it's actually, in a lot of ways, a very kind of empowering thing. And I talked to Dale Jameson about this. It's like we have these moments now where we feel so disempowered in the process of these these large systems that kind of automate our lives and provide food for us in a cost effective way, and all, you know, all of that. Um, I think kind of – you end up changing your view when you realize, oh, what what I put on my plate actually is an act of empowerment and taking – reducing the, the meat by its size or taking it off the plate or taking it off the plate two days out of the week is a, a powerful act and it actually gives you a sense of empowerment and that kind of came to me before I had that conversation with – with Dale, but it it was a it was a it was an affirmation having that that conversation about how we think of the future.
0: It's interesting uh hearing you talk about your kids with that too and the role that they've played in your thinking. And that Jonathan Saffron Foyer also talks about that in his book of having his first child and then receiving a note from a friend after the birth that says everything is possible again, and how he starts to think about The world really through his his kids' eyes, which is interesting too because then, of course, kids see animals often very differently than adults who've been taught to see them in certain ways and to put them in certain boxes with certain lenses and kind of see them fresh and often – often I think in a lot of ways sympathize and empathize with the animals perhaps more than adults do when they have a, a colder relationship from afar um, and one of the questions that's returned to again and again in the book and that you get at in, in various ways in the movie as well is, is the question that um, Jonathan proposes his grandchildren will ask him and all of our grandchildren will ask us which is what did you do when you learned the truth about eating animals to which of course your film is a tremendous answer for your own grandchildren <laughs> um, but the rest of us have a lot of work to do I think to answer that question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot. It's interesting because my boys haven't seen the film yet. They they can watch to a certain point, but then there's some, you know, 10 minutes in, it gets pretty dark with some of the shots of how animals are raised in confinement, and so we always kind of hustle them off uh, if uh, if they're in the theater, but I do feel there is something that is satisfying knowing that um th- at least as a placeholder, this film, I can say I was conscious and thinking about this and and it caused us to change and I think that's all we can ask of anybody really is once you actually know when you really know uh, uh, something uh, and you don't act on it, then, then that becomes an enormous uh, problem about how you view yourself. So Jonathan had that like moment but it, I ran parallel and it was – that was a, a big hook for me in reading the book too is that he was, you know, talking about having children and I was just underway having children and this was like something that really kind of connected me because it does change once you start to have a child. You start to think about your your – all that you think about starts to go towards a different human being and it's such an interesting thing to take on because we we'll go back to animals but – kids and animals and they kind of you know they they set the bar for animals as much they set the bar for themselves and and there's some idea of oh i'm thinking about another human or another animal in uh, and, and i'm not thinking of as much of myself you know the century of self which is you know this idea that we've been consumed for a century of just thinking about ourselves and then you get into another place where you're actually able to Spend your time thinking about somebody else is really rewarding and kind of one of those moments. And Jonathan's aha moment in the book is that, but I, I, I lived through that, and we, we, I was able to share that, uh, and then converted in into the to the emotion or feeling of the film.
1: It dovetails in an interesting way too with the idea of rewinding, um, because. One of the ideas that you guys have explored is the idea of a relation to nature involving this am- forgetting and amnesia of the kind of spirit that farmers like Reese and the others that you profile are trying to rediscover and um, conjure up again.
2: Or hold on to even. you know They're the products of that system and they're getting older. And I, th- I think – I mean that – I don't know. Uh, having gone through it, I, I immersed myself in such a way making this film. But I mean I'd like to think even if anybody saw the film it, it, that they would might pose that question. Oh, these guys with such rich understanding and history, it's all going to be wiped away when their generation goes. And there's only such a small percentage of people who uh, have that knowledge now and uh, – it's almost hard to get back and then that goes back to kind of the Wendell Berry idea that you need to kind of form those systems. So in the film, you know, Frank Reese really talks about there used to be this wonderful system at play where spring would come and everybody would start this process of planting and renewal but you would go and visit your neighbors and you would share information and trade it and there was this kind of protective sense of community that was that made uh, you know there was an archipelago of all these communities in the united states and we pride ourselves on thinking that's who we are we like we still like that image of ourselves even though it's it's really kind of the mythos of america right we we don't really – we aren't a patch quilt of, of small independent farms where it's a it's a big industry and there's only a few players who really profiteer from it. Um, but the idea of returning to that, which I think is the argument that Wendell Berry is saying, this has everything to do with our sense of self and identity and we just don't know it anymore. We've moved so far away from it and I think that's where this kind of loss of spirit that we were – we. We were talking about in that moment when Natalie says in the film, you know, it, it, paraphrasing, you know, what was written but, you know, that that it's not so much – it's not only about losing all these resources. It's also about losing ourselves, our sense of self, our spirit.
0: And you – in addition to Frank Reese, you profile um, in the film a number of other people, two of which were very striking as well. One was a fellow named Craig Watts, um, who is a, one of the contract farmers, former contract farmer for Purdue in North Carolina, and another um, was a fellow named Jim Keene, um, who was the whistleblower, at, as some listeners might remember, at the U.S. Um, Meat Animal Research Center up in Nebraska that the New York Times had a major uh, expose on a few years ago where they were conducting extraordinarily barbaric experiments on animals, one of which, if I recall correctly, was effectively leaving the lambs in the... Um, in the field to see if their mothers would still go out in extreme weather conditions and when there were predators around to try to rescue them or they would be there dying excruciating deaths. And that was just one of many, many examples which was all being done in the name of producing Profits and figuring out how you can produce higher profits for these few small players in an industry that, as you just said, is you know destructive to literally everything and everyone else except for these top corporate profit margins. And I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about those two characters and who have experienced – two people who, um, to the point you're just making, have experienced this loss and have sort of had their – have not had their spirits broken but certainly have had them threatened by this incredibly – uh, this The system is just you know at odds with that spirit and at many of the, with the relationships and the ways of being that um, we hold most dear
2: yeah i mean it it just to touch a little bit on but you know that the lambing project that still goes on today shut down after the uh, michael Moss uh investigative uh um, article was in the New York Times, but they soon opened uh the the program back it it it's actually man trying to take an animal that it tamed from the wild and domesticated and now there's an attempt to try and make it wild again so uh because labor being the 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 biggest cost uh in agriculture they want the animal to go back into the wild to be able to survive on grassland and ten to itself, but I find that so telling of who we are mm-hmm. that we take an animal and domesticate it and then try and return it back into the wild and think we can be successful at it um, but just to get back to you know I mean I guess you know the the point uh, you know there were two guys that aren't in the book that I decided were it was crucial to have um well, for lack of a better way, they both are whistleblowers that so they're working within the system and they can't take it anymore. And there was something that was really uh, – that seemed to be an important component in terms of telling all these stories uh, and what what is the breaking point. As Craig Watts says in the film, everybody has their breaking point. I had my breaking point 20 years in where I just couldn't take it anymore and he opened up his doors to people like me uh, and expose the factory farm system, which the industry spends enormous amount of time and effort to try and uh, divorce us from what's what's it look like inside. Uh, And with the farmers, they jeopardize everything by opening up the doors and that's what happened with Craig Watts. He immediately started to feel the weight of the large corporation that he was contracted with and it was had a devastating effect on uh, as you see in the film uh his family uh and and on his own psyche
0: and it really underlines the point too that these i think everybody knows and John Schaffers gets at this point in his book too as you do in the movie but that The meat industry clearly is hurtful to animals in some way, even if they don't know the details as much as the book and the movie make clear. They have a sort of gist of it at least. But I think that's not always obvious to people what an extraordinary human cost to both the contract farmers and the slaughterhouse workers and not to mention all the indirect human costs, the climate change, et cetera, that this industry has. And so I I think that that story of all sorts, that story as well as the story of the the veterinarian at the research center who blew the whistle really highlights –
2: yeah and i mean it's a, it's something observationally as I kind of tacked my way across the country to make the film uh that i i I really thought was an important uh, story to tell that it really it it takes so much away from us it takes so much away from our communities the very idea that there's these large corporations in play that make it contractually the the farmers are contractually bound not to talk about farming to their neighbor and if they do, they can be sued by the corporation. That's a fundamental breakdown of who we we are or I should say who we were and that was systematic and put into place by Don Tyson who realized that in order to get everything that he wanted, which was to vertically integrate the farming system into a place where he can control absolutely everything except for the things that – well, that that lose money. He left those for the farmers, so the chicken you know the chicken poop or the dead chickens or the barns these are things that cost uh, a lot of money to either dispose of or to keep uh, renovating and he put the cost on those and kept all the profits and in that process, he realized he had to break down the cultural community, the culture and the community of uh, of farming in order to get what he needed and he was successful.
1: And the government is somewhat complicit in this too, right? So the USDA defines a, f- a family farm as any farm where the majority of the business is owned by the operator and their relatives, which is misleading because then under that definition, 99% of farms are family farms, right?
2: Right. Well, and – Technically, there is a family there, right? But it's right. really owned by the corporation. Right. I mean, most the the day to day operation, the farmer owns very few things, and again, those things are the ones that are not really making a profit. Uh, and that system's in place, uh, and the USDA supports it. So it's odd looking at the USDA, right? Because in one, there, there's a there there's there's a duality there. There's one thing that they're supposed to do. It was as it says in the film. Uh, and I thought it was important to add this is that it was, you know, created by Abraham Lincoln and it was it was originally called the the People's Department and it was really out, out to protect farmers and their interest and so they put a department in place in Washington DC that could be the voice of uh, of those individual farmers. Well, as we move into uh, farming becomes corporatized and really the voice of farming is corporations, then that's when we really got into trouble. And so if you look how artificially supported the price of chicken is, it's underwritten by our taxpayer dollars because we support that in a very artificial way. So you're Cheap chicken. Jonathan and I talked about a, a lot about this. What is the price of a cheeseburger or a Chick Fil A Chick-fil-A sandwich? And when you externalize all the costs um, of what that chicken sandwich costs, it all of a sudden becomes quite expensive. When you look at the the, the diet, the eating, consuming that, and all the healthcare costs that are associated by it. Uh, the subsidies that we pay that are just enormous artificially supporting these uh, these products and then all of a sudden the USDA becomes this very, very different thing and so in, in the film, I decided to compress it all into one kind of stone and point the finger at the USDA and um, in almost a subjective way because i was i was once that kind of was uncovered to me i wanted an outlet to kind of point my finger madly at this this department that we support uh and and underwrite and they they're the ones that are helping they're com, they're complicit in this system and that just didn't make any sense to me
0: and then you have that same problem with other government agencies like the EPA, his mandate is to protect our the people's water and air, yet there have been multiple attempts to try to get the EPA to just try to map, not even to study or to document the – pollution and the some of these externalized costs that you've referred to of these factory farms and the operations, but just to physically locate where they are on a map. And even that was seen as too extreme by the industry on multiple occasions to allow. And so they're lobbying sort of the big meat nag and, and, I guess, petrochemical and all of these associated lobbies shut, that, shut down even that most, most meager step. So then you have, as Natalie Portman says very aptly in the film, someone whose job is not to guard the hen house from the fox, but to guard the fox from the Hen House, representing, of course, the American people.
2: Well, I, and that, that's right. And that's that's basically where we we find the USDA and our government now. They aren't necessarily uh, supporting our best interests. It's interesting, you know, so you talk about where the U.S. Mark and um, and Jim Keene, uh, where he was, I was chatting with him one night um, uh, when we were filming, but he he was saying that the water – uh, table has been completely destroyed by all the ke- petrochemicals that have now kind of gone down so deep that mm. that it reached the water table, which in Nebraska is significant. It's hundreds and hundreds of feet down and it's uh, – the chemicals have destroyed the water. So they're, they're in this absurd moment where they had to truck water in or they in the process of having to truck water in because it's contaminated and they're talking about having to put a salination plant in the middle of America. But it's too expensive to uh, produce w- good healthy water for, for the population size. So this is a perfect example of a system that has kind of run its course and it's one of the most profound things that Jonathan says in his book that I kind of carried weight while I was making the film, Uh, always carried with me was this idea that um, factory farming is eventually going to fail. It's not a matter of if, it's when, and we have artificially supported it. But eventually, it's going to cause so many problems, the case of the salination plant in Nebraska being a perfect example. But eventually, it's going to implode because it stresses out too many uh, things that um, are necessary for our own survival.
1: I'm curious how you navigated the decision to become a vegetarian versus what Foer calls a selective omnivore, if that was ever a live question for you? And by selective omnivore, I mean only eating meats produced by these sustainable farms.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, it, um, and I talked to Jonathan a lot about, uh, about this too when we were kind of on the road, you know, doing press for the, the, the film. And, and there's something because immediately I get asked – are you a vegan? Are you a vegetarian? Everybody wants to know and I, the label bothers me to, to no end because I don't want to place myself on the spectrum uh, because there's a lot of politics that goes uh, along with it and You know, there's now and there's additives, right? Flexitarian, and then there's reducitarian. There's all these like things that are popping up, and and I'm okay with that. Uh, In a lot of ways, that's that seems like progress. So if if I start to expound uh, about my vegan ways, which are significant in my diet, I mean that's pretty much how I consume uh, food now. But I reserve the right to, in my own way, to to eat meat. and the last time I did, I, it, it's almost ceremonial, but I, I chose to eat some of Frank's meat that was prepared at Chez Panisse with Alice Waters. And she was um, – she had a dinner on behalf of the film and for Frank Reese and she thought she was buying – she said it at, at this really nice event. She said, I thought for you know 40 years I was serving the best poultry and duck that you could find and I – I was wrong, you know, and that to me seemed like a really significant moment. She's embraced Frank and the idea of everything that Frank's about, and and um, so I I don't have a problem having some of Frank's uh, turkey in that in that moment because it, in a lot of ways it it I support what he's doing. The only problem is it just it's less desirable, <laughs> you know. It, what what it, what maybe meat eaters don't realize is that when you start. Eating less and less meat, you just don't desire it, and that becomes that becomes. But I, I just don't want to be put in and given a. T- but I that goes who to who I am. I've always been opposing that from from early childhood. <laughs> I think that's something in my DNA that I don't I don't like labels very much and. Uh, It's also – I think it takes away from what we really need to be thinking about individually, what we need to be uh, doing to try and change the course of not only how we eat but how we kind of move into the future and and have a healthy, sustainable planet.
0: I think too in the book, there's a quote that says something like you can wake someone up who's asleep but you can't wake someone up who's pretending to be asleep. And I think like it's hard to find – other than like being, a, if you're an, an activist, vegan or vegetarian, that's like the number one way to put people into a pretend sleep. I think often, um, and so I think it's, a, I think it's a strategically just a very smart angle to take too. To even if your goal, not that it necessarily is, but goal is to change eating habits or sort of have people vote with their fork per se.
2: Well, that's right. I don't want somebody to fake sleep, and <laughs> and you know, it, Jonathan and I were speaking to like a. A group of uh, students in Copenhagen who had just seen the film, and you know i it was interesting to hear Jonathan say it's like we make mistakes all the time it's human nature we just plan uh, just plan on your day to lie to yourself and be dishonest to yourself we We have that in our DNA all the time, so there's something to be said about kind of designing a system where you have to be so absolute uh and you can't fall off the wagon if you're trying not to consume meat because you know it's bad for the environment it's bad for the animals and arguably uh and i think rightly so it's bad for for your own well-being but there's so much pressure so then you either a meat eater or you're not a meat eater and that argument has to kind of go away and in order to move forward I believe anyway and that – you know, what Jonathan was encouraging people is like, hey, you know, in a lot of ways, just, you know, consider not eating meat twice a week and that actually – if everybody did that, it would have this enormous effect and that's something that's easy to encourage, not only showing the film to people but but also having that conversation and we were showing the film in Utah and somebody came to me and it was at uh, uh a conference and uh, a guy and it it wasn't a conference of people who were thinking about food it was it was uh people who uh invest money into corporations and so we were there to show them that that there's a lot of risk involved with with uh, investing in factory farms and this guy came up to me a wealthy hedge fund guy and he said you know I watched your film. I haven't eaten meat for two days and he said, I'm going to eat meat again. But your film gave me uh, for the first time some sense that I'm I'm not going to – I'm just not going to eat meat for a couple of times out of the week and I'm okay with that. And I was so struck by that. I didn't even know what to say because that – to, to me seems really significant. Here, here, Here's a guy who has gone away. a hearty meat eater. He's self-confessed and he's actually saying he's not going to do it a couple of times because he really understands the significance.
0: Yeah, I think the film and the book both in some ways offer um, a different and better story to people. Like if the typical story that we have in America about meat eating – is that this, this is coming from family farms, you call it family farms, this is part of who we are and this is what we've eaten on Thanksgiving and at these meals for years and years and you know, yada, yada. Then along comes both the book and the film, Eating Animals, which I think offer a much more nuanced, but in a lot of ways closer to our most deeply held values without, without imposing a story or imposing values but just saying here are the facts and here is uh, indirectly a story of what we could be and who we are in terms of the deepest held values and this is how this could fit in to a new a new story of farming or rewinding of farming, which I think is maybe perhaps what he was feeling when he when he said that to you.
2: Yeah, and I, I yeah I I think so. And but I also it's so funny that nobody likes the finger wag of being told how to eat. There's something that there's a barrier that comes up, and to, to go back to the analogy, uh, you know, you you fake sleep and. I understand it because – and I think Jonathan was trying to get right into it in the book is that it's so steeped in values and family traditions and cooking. So he always talked about his grandmother's chicken – that would she would make over and over again for him. And how could you deny that? It brought such so happiness to her and it brought happiness to the family. And so it, it's difficult to then say to somebody, uh, well, you can't eat chicken anymore. Um, it's not that simple. It was very important that the film never felt like you were getting a finger wagged at you um, because there are those films that that do that and they can be successful and significant in a certain way. But – It's just not the story that I think needs to be told right now.
1: Right. I think part of what accomplishes that is the fact that these – because of the relationships that you formed with these characters, it's like a great story. It's It's a character-driven drama and it's true and it's a counterexample to our current system. And it must have been challenging to say the least – maybe you have you have your secret strategies as a as a filmmaker but to come at, at these people who as you've said were kind of living in remote ways by virtue of their ambitions so it's the project of kind of approaching them and and presenting yourself and pitching to them what you were hoping to do must have presented its own difficulties
2: I think I think it is. You know, I've been I've been doing this a while now, and 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 so there's pitfalls that I I clearly avoid now from when I started out. But I, I think there's something to be said about coming in with this idea of mutual respect and admiration, and so when when you go in and you meet somebody, even if they're uh, so uh, like in the film, you saw there's a cavalcade of, of angry farm managers who who run the corporate, uh, corporate farms that kind of yell. And I always had a, a great deal of empathy for them because you could see the pain in their face that they knew there was something fundamentally wrong, that they knew that this isn't right uh, and that they knew – if anybody else saw it that it wasn't right and that in a lot of ways gives me a tremendous amount of hope that there's still that feeling that there's something wrong what i would really be worried about is if somebody was completely indifferent to the uh, the amount of, of of suffering and and you know poor animal agricultural practices taking place every day and somebody didn't think thought it was perfectly okay and for me if you if you go that way so when you get those confrontations they didn't they immediately were violent in the sense that you would have somebody you know pointing a finger into your chest or or threatening you but then it, the conversation immediately started to change and i think because i think they understood that i i had some some sympathy for the position that they're in and that it's a lot more complicated that you can't just expose them for doing this because it's they're generational farmers too probably, more than likely if they're in that position running these uh, these factory farms. And so it's it's that there's just one generation away from a completely different way of things that have been run and they, they probably know that their father would be or their, their grandfather would be horrified about how farms are run now. And so I think that if you take that kind of tact on, it's a much better approach to having a conversation and then in turn, you know, people's lives unfold in front of you. And and, and that's and the stories they want to tell come out and you you, you can't really go into somebody's life and ex- expect what you're asking from. So you, you you have to approach it in a certain way and we – you know, you talk of empathy but it it is this – it's this genuine um I really appreciate the lives that they're in, and I don't look at it like that I'm in any way here to judge, but that i find I find people endlessly fascinating, and I find whatever environment they're in, like I've been to you know. Dubai and gone through kind of the labor camps where there's people who have had their passport taken away. They were promised all this money and they're working for $4 in indentured servitude. And you go in and they're at the extreme point of their life. But if you lend some empathy or if if, if you come with some admiration and it's genuine and it is for me at least, then I think that's the that's the beginning of, of a relationship that where you can start to film with somebody where they feel um, I can trust you, you can trust me and that mutual uh, relationship develops. But it takes time. I mean in a lot of people, it, it, it's counter it, – it goes counter to how we kind of do things in life now especially like a, as you see the news agency is now the cycle is in seconds instead of – hours or days. It's, and so people have a whole different rhythm of, uh, of getting to stories now that I think are disingenuous.
1: Yeah, there's a, apparently a saying among journalism, among journalists, um, this phrase churnalism that resonates with a lot of them and it kind of goes back to what you were saying about time.
2: Yeah, I mean uh, to get to a good story you're just you're just going to have to spend time with people. There's no other way around it. And for me, uh, I happen to enjoy it, so it's easy. And I I don't I I love going into the middle of America and hanging out on a independent farm and talking literally talking turkey. It's a joy for me. And it's it's also great then to go, you know, I always love going to visit Frank cuz the town you know, town i stayed in was Lindsberg and it was a swedish enclave town and they had like swedish theme everything and you'd go to the swedish inn and they would have you know like pickled beets and herring and rye toast for you in the morning and then you would go to the you know the bar to get a bite to eat and all the guys from that were on the combines would come in there and there's all these culturally rich moments that you get, I feel very lucky to be able to be in the place where I get to experience those. And that's, for me, the joy of what I choose to do in my life. You know? And
0: the film is very special too, I think, in that regard in that it makes very clear... Uh, indirectly through your storytelling that compassion is not zero sum. And I think often with farm animals, sometimes it's seen as, you know, why should you care? And, and, and Jonathan addressed this in the book, why care about farm animals when, as you mentioned, these indentured servants effectively in Dubai, people in slavery, et cetera. There's so many horrific problems in the world to tackle at once. You know, why care about animals? And it makes And it makes it clear, I think, your film that compassion and empathy are not zero sum and that love – isn't finite and that justice isn't finite and that if anything, to expand your, your empathy to the workers and to the, to the farmers and to the, and to the animals as well, even beyond the species boundary, if anything, just it grows <laughs> rather, than, rather than shrinks or, or takes up uh, something of which we have a limited amount.
2: And and the idea of extending that even to what Frank said, which was that moment that really – I put it into the film. But it, it, he says, holiness is not doing great things. Holiness is doing small things with great love. And to me, that was a fundamental aha moment, which I put into the film was that very way of looking at the world is so missing in our lives. Uh, and it has everything to do with why I question um, how we're moving forward into the future. That used to hold us together, you know that very kind of thought process, and and now, um, yeah, I mean it's it's we we've changed so much.
0: To close, we like to ask each of our guests for two or three book, or in your case, book or film, um, recommendations that have shaped how you think about animals and about this topic of factory farming um, and human-animal relationships. Do you have a couple that come to mind that you'd recommend?
2: Uh, Not off the top of my head. Do do I have a little bit of time to think about it? Yes.
0: People can check out our website. When we talk about animals.org, we'll have your recommendations.
2: Um, So it has to be specific to animals and— No,
0: it can be—I mean, I think the thing that— as as your film makes so clear about animals, that's perhaps most exciting is any question about animals. I think Jonathan actually has this line in his book too: "Is that any question about what is an animal is also a question of what is a human?" Yeah. So really, really any books or films that have influenced influenced you in in, in major ways.
2: Uh, oh boy, well, that's uh, a hard question. That for is a hard artist. one, and it's very it's it's really uh, loaded. Uh, so. I'll just – I'll start riffing and you guys can edit out in and out. But uh, I, Adam Curtis' uh, series, The Century of Self, mm-hmm. which is this incredible um, BBC series that uh, I – it's hard to describe but he just looks at our indulgence of the last uh, 100 years in with, with humor and f- uh, flair and uh, it's just compelling. Uh, it's a three-part series but it's – it 's completely drinkable, um, and then one that 's very specific and I think speaks more to ourselves than animals, but I think falls into the category uh, is sapiens, which of course is it 's an amazing book it 's not only amazing just in terms of um, of what it exposes it 's just how it 's written it's it 's so impressive the conversation tone the rat tat tat it's a book I had a hard time putting down and uh, I found uh, – people will argue this. I did not find it dark and bleak. I found it very optimistic and enlightening and uh, I can't recommend it enough and it's doing quite well. That's the amazing thing. You – as I've been in airports so much, it's incredible to see at the bookstores in airports Sapiens which is a, a – it's a, it's a hard topic but boy, is it good. And then love in the anthropocene also is another oh, one that yes. I really like uh, dale who that 's one of the reasons why I kind of moved uh, towards having Dale big picture kind of gives the forty k look around on on what we 're doing with factory farming and uh, I had a, a number of pursuits. I had a visual artist who was doing the same thing, kind of having a, a big hover around over the idea of factory farming and um, but Dale's uh, – having read that book really kind of influenced me to get him to talk about big picture of where we're going. And uh, so I learned a lot from not only that book but having the conversations with Dale. Oh,
0: well, Christopher Quinn, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We, we can't recommend uh, the film highly enough to anyone listening. It's, it's a rare film that can be both, both horrifying and beautiful all at once. So thank you for your important work.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio, and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Christopher Quinn and his film, Eating Animals. Thanks for listening.